Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. The Incomparable. Number 663, April 2023. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. This is an episode of our book club. And the book club has begun the march, the slog, no, the exciting (laughs) march through award shortlists. Nebula award nominees are on display now. Um, And in this episode, we're going to be talking about two more nebula nominees the hugo nominees are coming out soon so we'll know how many more books we have to read after this only one nebula nominee remains but there will be more added to our list for sure Uh, almost for sure um but in this episode we uh read two of them and so we're going to talk about them and then also tell you what we're reading that we liked let me introduce my panelists who are on this this book club journey with me erica ensign is here hello hi jason i read books all right, good. Two books assigned this time. Two books, yep. a little extra assignment there. Assigned by the Nebula people, not assigned by me. So I, it's not me. Don't one be of them was me. short, or at one, least it felt one, short. One of them was very short. Uh, Aline Sims is also here. Hi, Aline. Hi, I also read books. Nice. Nice. That's, that is, if you didn't, this would be a problem for this podcast. Mm-hmm. It would mm-hmm. be a serious problem. Scott McNulty is here from Philadelphia. Hello, Scott. Hello from Philadelphia, the land of Benjamin Franklin and Wawa. And Wawa, yes. <laughs> what more do you need? Now, I mentioned Nothing. Philadelphia because also from Philadelphia, Deb Stanish is here. Hello. Hey, well, actually the suburbs, but I'm here for the Wawa. I'm closer to the Valley Forge than the Liberty oh, Bell. All right. But, you know, we're covering all aspects of That's the right. historical area. Yes. Valley Forge is lovely as well, though. So it is if you're beautiful. you're in the Philadelphia area, visit Valley Forge. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. my my uh, grandmother lived for many years in the greater Philadelphia area, too. If, does Bucks County even count as greater Philadelphia? Oh, not anymore. Know. It's Pennsylvania. <laughs> anyway, yes. that part it's of Midwest, Pennsylvania right? is the greater Philadelphia area. Well, <laughs> eastern Pennsylvania. Um, western Pennsylvania is, as we as we all know, as we established, and Tony Sindelar will back me up on this, the Midwest. Anyway, <laughs> oh, people are so angry. Uh, yep. We read Spear by Nicola Griffith, the aforementioned short book, and The Mountain mm-hmm. and the Sea by Ray Naylor, uh, which in our last episode, I want to say, Scott said was the best octopus-themed book he had read this year. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were, by that. there were two, but that was one of them. And uh, let's start with Spear. Nicola Griffith, uh, don't think I've read any of her stuff. Um, this is a short book, 184 pages in hardcover. Uh, it is 
Arthurian mythology with a twist. And so I wanted to state up front, and I'm curious about the panel. I personally know almost nothing about Arthurian mythology. Um, so I came into this and I was like, uh, oh, they probably mean King Arthur. That was about. And then later it was like, <laughs> oh, is it the Lady of the Lake? I think it is. But like literally knew nothing more than that there was a lady with a lake. So uh, do any of you are any of you stronger with Arthurian things. I mean, you are all stronger than Ar- with Arthurian things than me because mm-hmm. I am not. Clearly. <laughs> I think I might be about on par with you. Okay. Mm. You know you recognize Lancelot and Guinevere. I mean, that that was and I was Merlin. like I could do that. I got it. Yep. I got it. Yep, got Merlin. Yep. Yep, Merlin, That's, right? That mm-hmm. was the yep. extent of it for me, really. Yeah. It's yeah. not my forte. I would have said that I don't really know all that much about uh, Arthurian legend. And then, and yet, I read this book <laughs> and I picked up a lot of stuff and I read the uh, the author's note, which is kind of long and has a lot of like in-depth stuff about the the sort of the, the two different types of mythology that she was twisting together, the Arthuriana and the Irish uh, uh, mythology. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that part. And then, oh yeah, that guy, I almost forgot about him. Mm. And like, I was like, yeah, so I feel like I might be, I might be a little stronger on it than I was giving myself credit for. I have forgotten probably most of it. Like we read Mort d'Arthur in when I was in high school, I think. So like I have a foundation in it, but it's that was a long time ago. Erica, my foundation in it is Monty Python's Holy Grail yeah. and Spamalot <laughs> on Broadway. Uh-huh. That is the extent of my wow. knowledge. I think a yeah. lot of mine came from other fictional works that were riffing on it, like the Finnevar Tapestry and some of the other like series that that used it at the core, Marion Zimmer Bradley stuff. Um but but yeah, so I, I picked up on, I guess, quite a bit. Yeah, I, I kind of the same way. I There was a time when I was like really deep into Arthurian stuff. Um, you know, we read, again, Le Morte Arthur. We read Jeffrey of Monmouth, a lot of that um, mm. sort of stuff around it. Um, and of course, Percival, like picked up on that right away because of the Fisher King and wow. the Holy Grail and all of that. Um, but it was... Uh, I think I've forgotten more than I thought I did because mm. I was I was going through. I'm like, this is kind of like twinging a bell, but I I didn't pick mm-hmm. up on it immediately. I kind of had to go back and reread it. I'm like, oh, I see what she did there. That's clever. I've checked, by the way, my entire um, knowledge of Arthurian mythology is totally from the sword in the stone. That's solid. That's solid. Scott, do you have any Arthurian knowledge that you're bringing to bear here? Uh, well, I um, I have a degree in English. Uh, and so many years ago when I was in college, I read some things about Arthurian legend. Uh, mm-hmm. And we all know, since I only vaguely remember what happens in Spear, <laughs> you can imagine how much I remember of what I've read in college, right. uh, which is to say very yeah. little. Mm-hmm. All right. But hey, you got that degree that can't take that away from you. I mean, probably I you'd have to do something really bad for them to take that away from you. Yes. So very very bad. Yeah, and even then they probably still wouldn't. No. So, I I don't I don't know if they revoke degrees at all. Anyway, uh weird, don't do anything bad, Scott. Anyway, um <laughs> Spear I make no promises. So so what I thought was interesting about Spear, so Spear is about a uh it's interesting, it's about a girl who is raised by a kind of uh weird witch lady. And they hide in a cave and they don't know about the world, but the girl wants to explore and um, and ends up 
going on a journey to the wider world and deciding that she wants to become a knight. And so she hides that she's a girl and gets a some gets some armor and stuff from a dead guy she finds. <laughs> and uh, then it turns out has some supernatural powers that allow her to defeat various villains and defend lands and ultimately ends up being invited to Camelot, essentially. Uh, although the names are not quite the same because they're using, I assume these are other, they're, you know, from roots, from actual Welsh. Yeah, from it's yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot of Welsh. There's a lot of consonants. Anyway, um, and so and so it is. It is on one level an Arthurian adventure story, but with a bunch of interesting twists um, involving uh, the fact that the main character is a woman playing a role that is generally is a man in the in the mythos, um, and so you get uh, all sorts of different kind of things going on. The Lady of the Lake. Uh, also appears and reveals a lot about her, uh, the, our main character's background and who the witch is, and who who Merlin really is and the status of Merlin and their, their, their brother and sister. And so they're intertwined and there's a lot, a lot going on here. Uh, but it is also fundamentally a coming of age story about this, uh, about this main character. Um, and uh, I also thought it was, it was interesting too that um it's definitely got lgbt themes and relationships but one of the things that i thought was interesting is that um our main character is referred to by other people as he because she's pretending to be a man so she can be a knight but is always gendered by the narrator as a she so this is one of those cases of uh a woman who has to pretend to be a man. So I would say not a, not a trans theme, but there are definitely gay themes in it as well as lots of gender critique kind of things going on. Also, I was reminded of what is it? Uh, Brienne from game of Thrones where it's like, she's stronger than the guys anyway. So maybe you should <laughs> let her be a knight. Uh, mm. And there's some of that going on here. Plus she has like her spider sense where she can defeat that red knight because she's got the ability to like see where he's going to go. And that's that for me, that was the moment of like, yeah, she's going to, she can basically defeat anybody because she has magic powers anyway. That So it's, it's her kind of adventure figuring out who she is and reaching Camelot and it's, it's less than 200 pages. So <laughs> that's kind of what it is. They, she goes to the lake and, and learns and uh, learns the story of her mother and her origin and kind of resolves it. Uh, anyway, ish, ish, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ish. So that's that's yeah. what Spear is. I I enjoyed it. Um, feeling like I was missing half of the references, <laughs> but getting that it's a coming of age story uh, with some interesting kind of magic and twists from even the things that I know about Arthurian mythology. So that that was sort of what I took away from it was was that that it's a it's uh I, I really actually enjoyed her adventure stuff. And when it gets to Camelot, I'm like, okay, I, I get it. It's gotta come due now. We really need to resolve all of the mythology here. But honestly, I kinda liked it when she's like an itinerant knight uh cleaning up people's messes and yeah. uh falling yeah. in love with uh, the the stable girl. The <laughs> that was, that was kinda, yeah, that was kind of mm-hmm. great. <laughs> 
But, I, you know, I think the thing I really liked about the story, because, I mean, basically it is a retelling of, of Arthur, and there's only so many twists and turns you can take with that because the, the structure of the story is the same. And this really does sort of lean really hev- heavily on, um, and I know I'm going to mangle the name of this, but it was a French poet um, around 116, I think it was um, looking at the Wikipedia page. Um, it was Christian de Troy, um, who wrote... The Percival and the Fisher King legend, and it was like sort of like the the thing that raised Percival out of the obscurity of the Round Table, and the story follows pretty closely along those lines. But what I thought was interesting, it wasn't that she just didn't want to become a knight; that she wanted to feel like she belonged to something bigger. She wanted to find a place. It wasn't mm-hmm. the glory of the battle, and it wasn't the fight. I mean, obviously, she was exhilarated in her own strength, but her motivation was like finding a home, was finding a place where. She she belonged. And I thought that was an interesting twist on all of the glory hounding that you read about in so many of the Arthurian legends. Yeah. And so it's per- Percival who who is, it's p- the Welsh name, which is Peridor, is mm-hmm. is who this this character is. But it is the, right. it is the Percival Parzival uh, analog going on here. Mm-hmm. I also liked, I mean, it's, it's the Arthurian legend, but it's also intertwined with some like Welsh and Irish fairy Mm -hmm. mythology, which are not necessarily mythologies that are, I mean, probably somebody else has pulled them together before, but it wasn't something that I had seen before. So um, you have the Tuatha de Denon and all that kind of stuff mixed in. And there's this whole side where there are, are, are fairies and they exist outside of of the world. They are they fairies are not human, but they can they can have babies with humans. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder wonder what would happen there. And it uh, it takes the uh, sort of like the the four important magic items that the that the fairies have and basically makes them some of the Arthurian right. things like the, the Grail, the Grail and, and Excalibur. The sword. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And then and the spear. Right. Yeah, that was an the, interesting the twist. Titular like spear, that. yes. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I really enjoyed the like Deb's right. Like the the Arthurian structure myth is kind of set in stone, just like a sword. Ha ha. Um. And uh, and the, there are a lot of twists that have already sort of been done with it. So I appreciated the sort of weaving in of of a different mythology and layering the two on top of each other. And and yes, like everybody. <laughs> Everybody in the book has like two names because you get the, you know, the one name that you might recognize and then the Welsh version or right. the Irish version and and descriptions of them. And, you know, it there were times where I thought that there was almost a little much of that where it was just like, OK, I, I, I don't need quite the entire backstory history of every single character if they're only going to be on the page for, you know, a sword fight. But uh, but I still I, I was I appreciated that she had gone to the work to put all that together Um even though it was only 184 pages, it did occasionally feel like it got bogged down in some of that, especially at the beginning. I had a little bit of trouble even figuring out where we were in the world. I did not know right. it was an Arthurian mythology story no, to start with. And it was it, it took me some time to sort of find my footing and figure out what, A, what was happening and B, to come to any kind of a resonance with the main character. I really kind of bounced off her at first. <laughs> Because I just I just didn't know where to deal was. I felt like the 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 writing itself, the prose was 
I don't know. It reminded me a little too much, I think, sometimes of the Arthur, like the older Arthurian mythos stuff. It was a little bit, I don't know, stodgy is not the right word. That is not the word that I want, but something that's in between stodgy and fluid and relaxed. Something in the middle there is sort of where this landed. And uh, it did make it a little bit hard for me to read sometimes, getting through it. I had a really hard time getting into it. Um, I defaulted to my, I I bought it um, as an audiobook first and was listening to it. And I just, my eyes kept glazing over and I'd be like five minutes into it and I had no idea what was happening. And so I'd restart it and the same thing happened. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll read it. So I bought an ebook version and the same thing happened. And I finally had to sit down and read it with my eyeballs while listening to it wow. to be able to get into it because there was just something about the way the first the first chapter especially or the first part was written that I just could not I could not pay attention to it was like a Charlie Brown teacher talking to me. Um, <laughs> once I finally got, you know, several chapters into it, I was fine. And I listened, I ended up listening to the rest of it because I wanted, um, I knew I would not read like the names and the place names correctly. So I wanted to have a more correct pronunciation in my ears for all of the places, even though I wouldn't be able to say them now. Um, but it was, I really struggled to get into it and I don't know that I ever completely overcame that. I felt a little distant. I don't know how to describe it other than I felt a little distanced from the book as I was listening to it. I didn't feel immersed in it. I, I think maybe part of that was because I knew like Jason, I knew that there were references and I knew there was stuff that I just was not getting. Um, and so I think that maybe I was a little in my own head about it too, as I was, as I was trying to frantically consume the rest of this book today before we <laughs> recorded. But you know what, Aline, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's just that at least because I picked up on a lot of the references. And I think the way that you just described it is a really good way to put sort of my experience, like feeling a little bit removed from it. Some stories I read and I just feel like I'm immersed and I'm flowing with the character and I never really got that feeling. I think I was more intellectually interested in what she Mm -hmm. was doing with the Arthurian mythos. So I don't think I was necessarily any more immersed in it than you were, but I think I was maybe more interested in it simply because I kind of saw the structures and knew what she was playing with. Scott, what do you think? So this this may be indicative of my enjoyment of the book. But after I finished it, I thought to myself, is that a novel? Uh, So then I looked (laughs) up uh, the Nebula novel rules and how long this book was. And in fact, it is technically a novel for the Nebulas. uh, It's real close. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it's it's very short. Um, But that's not to say I don't don't think it's a bad book. I think it's well written. Um, I think it is about a thing that I care very little about. And so I had a hard time connecting with it. Um, like I, Arthurian legend doesn't really do much for me. So um, I would have never read this book if it weren't nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does, I think it was good and well-written. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to say about it because yeah. I didn't really connect with it. I'm with you. It's not my cup of tea, but I, I, I connected with it, like I said, in the sense that I really liked the coming of age part of it and, and her kind of like, fi- she finds her her place and then we also discover that she's sort of got some special powers and that part of it was fun the camelot stuff what i liked about it is that arthur has basically been told uh or artos uh that uh that a that you know basically that that she's going to be his downfall essentially um he doesn't trust her like everybody else does which is I, i think it's an interesting dynamic I enjoyed the idea that Arthur, uh, Lancelot, and Guinevere are a uh, a romantic triple, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was nice. I thought that was kind of fun, and and like that's like we were all thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just make that canon. Um, I, I thought that was fun. Um, the the twist with sort of uh, you know that that her mother is Merlin's sister and that her parent is a fairy uh, and that the four items, I mean, I, I like the spinning on like the Holy Grail and Exp- Excalibur and the, and the spear. These are all magic items that are part of this. And she ends up sort of with her revenge on her uh, father who abandoned her. Um, yeah, but, but I, I agree with Scott that I, I would never have chosen to read this other mm. than the fact that it was on a short list, but I did like it. I think it is very well done. Uh, I said to Aline before we started, um, that I didn't notice, I swear I didn't notice the commas. I know that it was really a, a problem for <laughs> Aline. I, I didn't notice it. Was. it. I, 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 uh, I did think it was a little bit of a slow starter, but then I, because when it's, when it's really like a person who's never seen the world, who's in a cave with her kind of weird mother i'm like what is this like what am i even reading here um but then (laughs) i i did get into it more after that and i think it's i think it's very well done and it it, this so there's a the backstory is that there's an anthology called stone sword table sword stone table anyway uh that is a uh a a remixed arthurian anthology and this was originally going to be in that um, and then it got too long for that. So it is ironically just long enough to be called a novel, but also got too long to be in that, that short story anthology, but it's the same idea here. And, and I think it's, it's fun once I realized what I was seeing. Um, and yet, you know, it, it's also true that this is not my particular cup of tea and I, I, I can't get excited by the, I appreciate that, that she's remixing Arthurian mythology here. I really do. But I feel like it's a lot of the cleverness is lost on me because I just don't know any of it or care that much about it. But I did enjoy it as a coming of age story. Yeah. You know, I think if, if you're somebody who does enjoy Arthurian myth and are, you know, this is your jam, it really is kind of a fun puzzle to read because I found mm. myself, because I knew going into it, it was a retelling of this story. Um, so I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew what to expect. It, it, I was a little confused at the beginning, like, where, how are we doing this? Where are we taking this? Um, but after that, it was like a little you know, sort of a, a thought puzzle and a little game that I was playing with myself. Like, okay, am I, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing here? How is this going to tie in? To the point where I did go back and reread some passages and some sections once I realized what the story was doing. Um, but that is not everybody's jam. And that's okay. But if this is, if you do think that this is something, you know, you're interested in because of the subject matter, I think it is a really fun little quirky addition to the mythos. 
Yeah, I agree. If you if you are into Arthuriana, absolutely check it out. Uh, the other thing that I really liked about it is the end. And I mean, I don't want to get super duper spoilery, but it left me feeling good. And I was really worried because not every uh, Arthuriana type tale um, leaves you feeling happy. Some of them leave you feeling sad. Some of them feel, leave you feeling downright icky. Uh, it just it seems kind of like one of the rarest things is how warm and nice <laughs> I sort of felt about the characters at the end. And yeah, and Jason, you mentioning that, uh, you know, Lancelot and, and Arthur and Guinevere are a like happy and successful polyamorous relationship, which is another thing that you don't see like reflected all that often. I mean, quite often in the Arthurian tales, it's a, it's more of a love triangle or or something like that. Um, and I, I tend to prefer the ones where it's not, where where, yes, they are just all a big one big happy family. And that's totally what they did here. And I like that. I think it's a fun read for anybody. Except to leave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fine but, once I could read it. Yeah, but if you're into into anything Arthurian or even like you're just into kind of a knights with magic, like this is your jam, right? This is going to be for you. You're going to kind of enjoy it. And then, and then yes, it, it has uh, the LGBT themes as well uh, on a few levels that because because mm-hmm. in addition to pretending to be a man in order to be a knight our main character also like i mentioned meets the the uh the stable girl and has a a, a relationship with her that she has to leave uh that's uh, it was it was sweet it was really sweet mm-hmm. so uh and then then she runs into her later <laughs> <laughs> and she's married and it's like, well, you know, never going to measure. It was really one of those things like, you know, he's never going to measure up to me. It was one of those things. It was, mm. I enjoyed that. <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Let's move on to Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor, uh, which is uh, a book about an octopus. And it's longer. (laughs) It's 464 pages. It is longer. Uh, This is this. So the way that this was described to me, probably by Scott, is what if we discovered an intelligent species and had a first contact situation, but it was on Earth in the ocean? There is a super intelligent uh, or, you know sentient human level intelligence question mark octopus species that is discovered so i went in thinking that was going to be the book and that is in there but that is one (laughs) plot of the book is that Mm -hmm. there is this place in vietnam these islands that have been a a uh, a sanctuary uh that have been bought out by a like a a very a corporation or a um yeah corporation foundation thing um, but the the truth is that there is a monster that's been killing people there, and it's actually an intelligent octopus species. It's also a story about a guy who is kidnapped and put on an AI-operated fishing boat 
where they're basically slaves who have to work as fishermen on a boat that they never see land and they and they're guarded and by guards who are human but the ai runs the boat and i'll just uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler but like what happens if you kill the guards nothing because <laughs> <laughs> the ai still runs the boat so that's going on so there's artificial intelligence there and then it's also the story of a hacker an ai hacker who has gotten really good at looking at I don't know, mind maps and figuring out ways to navigate artificial intelligences in order to, you know, to hack them and get them to do what you want or, you know, whatever, whatever you might need. This guy is like the expert in that. So it's these three interlinked stories. Well, and there's also another story about the android who may or may not be uh, sentient itself. Right. Oh, I should say yes. So, so our, our one of our main characters comes to the islands where the octopus are, and on that island is the world's one and only sentient android. Because after they made him, everybody was like, "Okay, that's illegal." <laughs> and <laughs> let's never do that again. <laughs> and, and and the company bought the island and was like, "Well, I guess we'll just put him on our island because he can't go anywhere else." So there's lots of themes of what is intelligence and art and what is sentience and what does it mean to be sentient and can you even measure it in running through in all of these different storylines. And uh, I didn't really expect that from the book. And I, I know that not everybody uh, is going to share this opinion, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Scott who recommended this last time and say, <gasps> I loved this book. <laughs> And one the moment that I knew I loved it is is one of those segments with the AI hacker guy because it's got a real powerful William Gibson kind of vibe to it. The idea that this guy is kind of, you know, shady and there are shady people dealing with him and he gets his he gets his sort of girlfriend killed at one point by telling her too much and they're listening with their, you know, dr drone mosquito spy bots. Uh, and so that's going on separately from the other really interesting aspects of it. The, the incredibly depressing thing about the people on the boat and what's <laughs> happening with the Android and our scientist at, uh, the Island trying to figure out the octopus. So there's a lot going on here. I thought it was really great. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into and could, and, and it just, it was one of those books that as I was reading, I was like, Oh Yeah. Yeah, this is this is going to be one of those. This is going to be one of those that I tell people about. So I thought it was uh, very cool and uh, and fun. And uh, so thank you, Scott. I mean, we I, we were read it anyway, but I thank you for recommending it. And you 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 almost undersold it to me. Honestly. Well, you know, that's my specialty. You know, undersell things yeah. that you like to people because they may not like it, and then you won't be disappointed if they don't like. Under promise and over deliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I obviously agree with you, Jason, uh, but I'm very curious about what uh, Me too. The, our, our three compatriots here. Me too. <laughs> compatriots? I'm afraid. What I'm say afraid you? to say anything. <laughs> I'll the start. Fifth. Uh, I, I was so excited by this book because sometimes you read like a first line. I'm always excited by the first lines of books and stories. Like what does the author choose to put down as the first thing you're going to see? And I was thrilled when I read the first line of this book. Night. 
District 3 of the Ho Chi Minh Autonomous Trade Zone. And I was like, yes, this book is for me. This sounds amazing. I am in. That was my favorite part of the book. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good opener. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a robo helicopter. Like yeah. Sure. This mm-hmm. was a book that was, I mean, it's 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 well written. Uh, it, it's just super not for me. It's very philosophical mm. and it's about the ocean. Mm. And as we have determined in previous episodes of the Incomparable Book Club, I don't really care for books about the ocean. And there's a lot of ocean in this book. There is. I don't know if it's because oceany stuff tends to get more contemplative and philosophical, but I just I just felt like this book was sort of crawling up its own backside in terms of what is the nature of of you know humanity and uh, you know feelings and uh, like i was every single bit and piece that you were talking about jason all of those things like if you had described them to me and i had not read them myself i would be like oh that's interesting oh there's a there's an android and and even mm-hmm. they don't even know if they are they are truly human that's fascinating i i probably wouldn't have cared about the octopus stuff but like all the rest of it the, the ai boat and like <laughs> just describe to me as lot. concepts Sounds great. And somehow the journey of the 464 pages of going through it and, you know, it was beautiful prose. There were sentences that were just like, I can see that that is poetic and lovely. It just didn't it didn't work for me on an emotional level at all. I think this is one that if it wasn't for an award and if I wasn't going to talk about it on a podcast, I, I probably would have stopped at some point. Um, I kept going, hoping that maybe at the end something would happen that would turn me around on it. And it was kind of the opposite. It was just like by the end, I was I was really, really ready to be done. So, I mean, I still gave it three stars because I recognize the the work that went into it and that it's, you know, it's kind of beautiful, but it's sort of like a painting in, you know, you go to an art gallery and you're walking along and some paintings are going to like stand out to you and you're going to stare at them for a little while, but I'm just going to walk past this one because it just doesn't, uh, it's like, yep, I can see somebody went through a lot of work to paint that and I'm going to go to this corner where there's some sculpture or something. Also, there was one line that I actually found (laughs) really uh offensive <laughs> um toward the end of the toward the end of the book uh talking about the nature of consciousness and i think building ai and stuff there was a there was a line where it says but in the end you aren't anything but a prosthesis you can't replace real support i think that was talking about one of the like um ai friends that are are programmed to sort of like be your partner but not a real person oh, right. yes. was, mm-hmm. again a really cool idea um but the idea that you aren't anything but a prosthesis you can't re- replace real support i just felt like wow the person who wrote this maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with disabled people who use prosthesis because you know that that is real support, real support. actually like, literally yeah Real. It literally works. Uh, so yeah. I just, yeah, by that point, I was kind of already turned off. But that was one that I had to highlight because I was angry. So that's, that's their where one, I what, was a, what are they, 1.5s? Point 0.5s, oh, just point, point fives. Just point fives. They're not a plus yeah. one. They're a point 0.5. And the idea there yeah. is that they're and, – and we're introduced to one before we know what it is. And then we're introduced to the concept. And so you get to have that moment where you're like, oh, she's talking to her boyfriend back home, but he's not real. And the thing is, I knew that the whole time. Like, it it didn't mm. surprise me. It it was just, it was, there was, it was just too weird. Their interactions <laughs> were just too weird. And I was like, oh, this is not a, re- this is not real. Um, I'm impressed. I, it, it got me. 
I I also struggled with this book and, I, and Jason you said the page count and I was like oh is that all like it just <laughs> um, uh, I started listening to this as um, in the car as we were driving on a an extremely long journey and my husband made me stop it because it was too boring and it was putting him to sleep while he was driving <laughs> no. and um, it made me think about. I often talk about people ask, you know, what's your favorite book? And I'm like, well, I feel obligated to say Jane Eyre is my favorite book. And at one point, a friend of mine tried to read Jane Eyre, and she was like, the description of the Moors. And it, it, it just went on and on and on about the Moors and how gray they were and how, like, looking and gazing contemplatively over the Moors. And she's like, I just can't stand it. I couldn't read it. And I felt like that as they were just as the author was describing a, a building, a, an old, old hotel, and the brutalist style and the concrete and the blood. And I was just like, oh, it's going to be one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of those books. It just um, was not what I needed at this point in time in my life. Um, like Erica, I can recognize that there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, beauty in the writing. And I just felt, I felt like the book was talking at me rather mm. than trying to get me invested in it. Like it just, I, I, I don't know. It was like being in a college lecture hall with yes. 500 other students. I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't get into it. Especially the bits, there were little excerpts from books that were written by a couple of the characters yeah. at the yeah. beginning of each chapter. And at the beginning, I was like, okay, I kind of, I can see how these are, are fitting in. And by the end, I was sort of skimming them and yeah. I was getting annoyed. No, I didn't like those either. And I yeah, and I and I gave it five stars and I didn't like those either. It was too much. It's too much. That was where it did get up its own backside for sure. Deb, what do you think? Um, I'm kind of with you, Jason. I really, really like this book. Um, it it's like Spear was nice. It was good. It was a great read. I really enjoyed that. But when I was finished Spear, I put Spear down. I did not think about Spear again. Um, this book stuck with me a lot because there's so many, you think you're reading one thing, but there's really so many levels of complexity in this story. You know, there's themes of loneliness. I mean, the, our two scientists are incredibly lonely and people themselves are just lonely, which is why you get these 0.5s running all over the place and they're a little oculuses. Um, you know, the, the technology distancing people and what it means to be human. And there's just there's so much to chew on in this story. And I just, and even the black and white or in the gray areas of morality, because you have a little bit of both of that, where you have um, Dianema talking about, you know, we own so many different things and we, I can't be bothered with the, the, the main scientist who I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name because I know I'll mangle it horribly. Um, when she talks about Dianema being taken over um, bit by bit and she's like, I don't understand all the financials. That's not my job. It was just there for the science. And it turns out that Dianema was the owner of the AI slave ships. It was run by Dianema, yeah. which, mm -hmm. you know, I did not see that twist coming. I did see the, 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 the fake boyfriend being, um, mm being a 0.5. But there's also the, the morality of the stork society in that they're so dead set on what it means to be human and taking out um, Evram that they're, there's, they don't care about the collateral damage, which is just really feels so 
much like a play on what's happening with the pro-life movement right now. It doesn't matter what the collateral damage is as long as the pure tenet of philosophy is that, you know, we we this is what we believe in and this is what we're going to this is what we're going to do. So I think there was so much to chew on in this book that it just really it really kept my attention, even though there's so many horrible things that happen and there's so m- it, it's not a good look on humanity in general. No, it yeah. really makes you think that you know, maybe we should just let the AIs have everything because humanity is, is pretty crappy. Yeah, it's yeah. all pretty crappy. Um, to the octopuses, exactly. Mm-hmm. But there was one, you know, you talk about the little, and I agree, the little um, beginning of the chapter notes from their books and the lectures of the scientists that, that did start to get wearing. But there, and Eric, I had to laugh when you say, I just don't like books about the sea. Um, <laughs> because there was one quote by Ha in her book about the oceans where she said, you know, we came from the ocean and we only survive by carrying salt water with us all our lives in our blood and in ourselves. The sea is our true home. This is why we... We find the shore so calming. We stand where the waves break like exiles returning home. And as somebody who has never lived more than like 75 miles from the ocean, like I felt that so mm-hmm. deeply. Yeah. You know? I'm a landlocked baby. <laughs> no, man. Like, you know, like there's there's times when you like physically, I need to be by the ocean. Yep. I need to be by that water. Sure. And like that thing hit, that, that quote just hit so hard. And there's a couple really good passages like that. It is beautifully written. But it's a book that like I finished it yesterday early evening and I was laying in bed last night thinking about this story and I you know when a book does that to you and makes you question what you've read question just the idea of humanity and people and technology and are we doing the right things in the inverse reactions of technology like this is this is a keeper for me I really really liked it I feel like life makes me ask those questions too much yeah. already I didn't need a book to tell me and I, I watched The Next Generation a lot growing up. I've seen The Measure of a Man many, many, many times. <laughs> so, like, that's very foundational to um, my consciousness is thinking about, like, the nature of humanity and what makes people human and what qualifies as sentience and all of that. So it wasn't even thought-provoking for me on that level. Yeah, I kind of find that part to be the least interesting. Like, is this, does this AI have a right to live? Like, that to me was the least interesting part of the book. It just felt like it was there as a prop to have all these other discussions. Well, and I, I kind of thought it was doing the opposite of Measure of a Man, though. Instead mm-hmm. of questioning whether the android is conscious and sentient, it's questioning the very idea of sentience and how you know, right? Because the, the creator turns to the the android and says, oh, you're not sentient. And he kind of like ruins his entire life. And then she's like, because nobody's sentient. We're all just, you know, doing whatever it is, right? And well, Thomas so Thomas, I thought... Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting inversion. I mean, it's not original to this book, but I think it's coming at it from a very different and perhaps deeper uh, philosophical bent than Measure of Man, which is a wonderful episode of TNG. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to say it's exactly like that. I'm just saying it's it's something that – it's an episode of a show that I watched from a very young age that has had me thinking about this for a long, long, long time. Yeah, I think having the android who doesn't know if they're actually um, sentient or not and questioning the whole nature of it 
while they're interacting with these octopuses, which we haven't even talked about, like, but the idea that these octopuses have had this incredible pressure placed on them that has allowed them to do the things that would be required for an octopus. They they have longer lives and they become more social. And they turns out they've been there for a while and nobody really understood it for a while. And there's a the the one character who saw uh somebody else get killed by the octopus who was literally like walking down the <laughs> walking down the beach yeah. and then and then kills him and then he was uh accused of the crime but he didn't do it and of course he's interviewed by people who then then uh drug him and kill him because those people are are very bad and they're they're trying to hack in and, and do all those things. There's this kind of noirish thing with the hacker and with the mysterious people mm-hmm. who are interviewing everybody who's involved. I also thought you know, I mean, the 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 crumbling hotel that that they're doing all of this in, and it turns out that the octopuses have been watching them from the from the hotel pool, and that you know, again, it's sort of like you think you think you're initiating first contact, but the contact has been going on for quite a while, and you haven't been aware of it because they're smart. <laughs> you're not, mm-hmm. you don't have the upper hand in this relationship. I thought it was interesting, and I really like that it was in this crumbling hotel. It has a very claustrophobic the world is falling apart kind of feeling that I liked. It's uh, I got similar vibes to the wind up girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. Um, Similar kind of, of uh, this is, you know, um, East Asia, South, Southeast Asia and uh, 21st century. And, you know, things are kind of like falling apart and, and uh, new power structures, corporate power structures are involved. And, I thought that was all kind of fun. Um, but yes, Dianema, the, the, you know, whenever you've got a big acronymed organization, like they're <laughs> probably bad. Right. Um, what I, what I, is another funny quirk is that there are, they are, there are like AI monks on the Island. Um, mm-hmm. and the AI monks have memories of people, but are not considered sentient. They're sort of just AI. They're like robots that also can look at a database of somebody's memories. Um, but it turns out that, of course, that the that the the monks are the ones who are maneuvering against Dianema and take over the island from them at the end. And and our and our our one character, our one tangential character from the uh, from the robot fishing ships, just sort of like ends up on the shore at the end. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a it is uh you know it's thematically linked, and then it sort of like comes together at the end. It's sort of like okay. All right, I guess. But um, and they were kidnapped from that island, too. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I the, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, the two parts that I liked the most, the two um, storylines that I enjoyed the most were, yeah, the uh, Rustam, who was the hacker that, that we have have mentioned, and uh, uh, Iko, who was the 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 guy that was kidnapped and forced to work um, as a slave on the on the fishing ship. And I and I'm not in. I'm still not entirely sure why those are the ones that spoke to me the most, but I think I appreciated that those were the two characters that were actively like working towards something. <laughs> they seemed to have, uh, in a way, um, I don't know, they they seemed sure of themselves. And, you know, even when they were questioning things, they, they I don't know, they had a, a specific goal that they were working towards where the other, some of the other storylines like Ha, the scientist, and yeah. then later when we discovered like the, the woman who created Everham, uh, like they're just messes. Like both of them have sort of, you know, gone crazy. One has tried to commit suicide a bunch of times. The other one uh, has 
re, like just pulled back into herself so much that the only person that she ever talks to is just her 0.5, who I, I did not notice right away that it was a 0.5. But it as soon as it was revealed, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. totally 100 percent makes sense. And I think I think that I just I bounced off their <sighs> helplessness isn't the right word, but just the. They they were flailing so much in in terms of uh, emotional setups that it, I found it a little bit off putting, even though the sciency stuff was interesting. I think I was more interested in the the characters who were trapped mm. in a sort of more physical way, but were working through things in their head in a more I don't know positive way i guess making making strides forward like even even aiko who is trapped on on the ship and he's got this weird memory palace where he stores mm-hmm. all of his memories like he's becoming a better person because he's recognizing that caring for other people is a good thing and like that was kind of nice but it also left me really depressed being like wow it takes an awful lot for somebody to learn <laughs> to care for other people <laughs> that's I, sad i enjoyed that that ha <laughs> and um and our android and then ultimately the the woman who's sort of set up dianema are are so broken because they're I, I enjoy that the idea that these are broken people but they're also the or, or maybe not even people uh they're also the exact right people to figure out this mystery and i i enjoyed that that they and they do have a mission the mission is to to go down or send little robot mm-hmm. subs or themselves down into where the octopuses live and try to figure out how to communicate with them in a very, I would say that that part of it reminded me of Arrival a little bit. I mean, that's an obvious one, but it was a oh, little yeah. bit of that. Um, there's no, you know, weird time stuff. It's just, you know, how do you talk to the octopus aliens? And these are aliens that live on earth. I thought that was interesting that they're, that they're, really messed up and broken but they're also like the ones who are the right people to solve this and to prove this momentous thing and i i you know it that that part obviously worked for me and didn't work for you but that's that's what i took away from it and the motives like and i i agree i think ike was a great character because he touches on something that is so critical to this whole point of oh, this whole novel is the importance of making those connections which seem to be lost in the world that we're in, people are very, they seem to be, even though there's more technology, they're very isolated, which is why the existence of these point fives is almost really horrifying. Um, and talking about, you know, how makes a really, really close connection and shares confidences with Evram. And I think that's the point of the real um, which really matters in that relationship between the AI and humans, because he can be whatever he is programmed to be. And they, they realize that the motivation of what's happening with Dianema is not because, oh, we want to find this amazing thing. It's how can we find this amazing thing so we can build better brains, we can it. exploit yeah. this thing, right? <laughs> and, and and again, we get back to at the end, these these Tibetan monk robots are are, are probably the most I don't know upstanding creatures on the whole in the whole novel like you really root for them I was so excited when they took over the island and we found out that the security guard was actually the nun who was the you know third best hacker or the second best hacker in the world so I mean all those little touches that were subtle um, just really 
like I said, this is this is one you really think about after and, and stays with you and it makes you question what am I reading a novel from this perspective? Am I reading it from a different perspective? Like what is the message it's trying to be sent? Or is it all just this big glorious mess of humanity, which is basically humanity is just a big mess and we've we've really screwed things up and where do we go from that? It's a really good book that I just didn't like that much. <laughs> our, our hacker also, um, and he's got the thing where like the there's the guy who's like we could get you out, <laughs> and and uh, and he makes a good decision at the end, right? He basically is like I'm not going to do this. I'm going to walk away. Well, um, that was that was one of the bits that I thought because there's a couple of different scenes um, where like I was completely fooled uh, at the end. There's there's the scene where you have this this nice cop who who is is you know i'm just here to listen here's my card if you uh if you ever want to do the right thing and then you come to the scene on a boat where mm-hmm. you have the nice old cop and a hacker uh sitting across the table and i totally thought that that hacker across the table was was rustin was our hacker mm-hmm. from earlier in right. the book and i thought so until the end of that scene i was like wow they, i liked that guy why did they just kill him off like that that was really weird and anticlimactic only to later discover it was a different hacker yeah. who had been hired and so like that was there were clever moments in the book where i was just like wow that was very skillfully done nice that, hat tip Hat tip to the and I am still not sure because we have that moment where the hacker goes into Rustim goes in and talks to the old man who said, you know, if you ever want to get out, like, come see me. Who told the story about the dogs and he's mm-hmm. been injured when that freighter crashed into the land. Mm-hmm. I'm still not sure if the point of that of the freighter was to kill the hacker. Oh, yeah. Or was to take out like or the police was the. Right. Like, who is the most arrogant Mm. individual here that thinks they're the center of the story? (laughs) You know what I mean? But that's a really good question, because everybody, as as we talked about in our last book club, you know, everybody thinks they're at the center of the end. The arrogance of I am in a point of history that is so important and it's really not. And here you have two individuals like, oh, my gosh, they sent a whole ass freighter out to kill me and they both think it was designed for them and i think i and i still don't know which way i lean on that which just fascinates me why not both it could be both that, well, that would be really as always with our, our discussions i hope that that it has resolved whether you should read this book or not based on <laughs> do you feel like Aline and erica or do you feel like me and scott mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and deb because uh that that is where you're going to have to make your decision um yeah, having the hacker... Did you grow up near the ocean? Ah. Or did you grow up <laughs> far away from the ocean? <laughs> having the hacker... Um, that The hacker stuff was so neuromancer-esque, too, that that really just did it for me. That's, I love that kind of stuff. So all the stuff with the hacker. Um, you know, because it really is three very different kinds of genres, almost, of story, where you've got this... I'd say almost like a sci-fi Jack London-esque tale of survival on the ship. <laughs> and then you've got a William Gibson-esque noirish hacker, you know, on the run, powerful figures trying to get him to do stuff for them, that part. And then you've got the weird undersea mystery that's happening on the island. Um, and so it is three very different feeling um, stories that are happening simultaneously. Yeah, it just blew me away. So... Uh, the Mountain and the Sea, Ray Naylor. It blew enough people away for it to be nominated for a Nebula yep. Award. So there. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? 
maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's move on to uh, what books we are reading that we would like to recommend to you, a segment we like to do at the end of the book club. Um, and for that, uh, let's start with Erica, who is going to not recommend novels at all, but is going to recommend some short fiction. So we'll allow it. Yes. Uh, I will say that uh, issue 49 of Uncanny Magazine has a short story called Can I Offer You a Nice Egg in This Trying Time by uh, Ayori Kosano. Um, it's not a portal fantasy, but if you like portal fantasies the way that I do, you should read it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, also, there in uh, I think it's in issue fifty. There's a story called Waystation City by A. T. Greenblatt. Um, it's a mysterious city where people sometimes end up mysteriously, uh, and then they wait, and sometimes they have to wait a long time for a ticket back to their own time and place. Some people don't want to wait, so they risk the Undercity. Um, it's just this lovely, mysterious story about change and choices, and I heartily recommend it. Um, and I also then want to sort of cast your mind back to our book club where we talked about Babel, uh, the you know boarding school from the point of view of a, a non-white outsider. If you enjoyed that aspect of Babel, um, but you would like sort of a more gothic storytelling style and you prefer witchcraft to silver-based magic, I super highly recommend a novella called Radcliffe Hall by Miyuki Jane Pinkard. Uh, it was also in Uncanny Magazine, um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's another it's another British boarding school told from the uh, perspective of an outsider mm. um, uh, with uh, white supremacy as the big bad. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. All right, Aline, anything? Yeah, um, I have been reading a lot of bad romances lately. That does that. I'm not saying that all romances are bad. It's just the ones I've been reading are bad. But I do have two <laughs> really good books that I have read lately. Um, the first has been rec uh, recommended before. It's The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. And it's just basically what a bunch of what if a bunch of retirees solved cold case murder mysteries for fun and then got dragged into a, a current murder spree um, and eventually not a spoiler because all mysteries end up with the murder solved, solve the mystery. Um, it was it was really um, a sweet book, I think. Um the mystery aspect of it didn't pull me in as much as the characters. And I just got the second book from the library. So I'm super excited to start that soon. And then the second book is A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall. This is a good romance that I've read lately. Um, and it's um, a soldier. One of many soldiers is presumed dead at Waterloo because that's what happens in war. Um, and they take the opportunity to come back as a lady's maid and a woman rather than the Duke she used to be. Um, hijinks ensue. Um, it's a romance. So there's romance. Um, it's a, it's a little long, um, but it's a, it's a really sweet book. I thought, um, and it's kind of 
friendship and romance and and acceptance and love. And it was very sweet. So I, I recommend that book too. All right. Deb, any recommendations for us? I do. Your nonfiction auntie is here with Yay. another another. <laughs> um, I recently read West with the Night, and it's a memoir of Beryl Markham, who was a pilot um, in the colonial British Africa in the 1920s and 30s. And she actually um, completed the first, she became the first person who flew the England to North America route solo. Everybody talks about Lindenberg, but she made it from England to North America. She didn't quite make it to New York. She crashed in Canada. She ran out of their engine ended up icing up. Um, this book Sorry. actually was published in the 1940s, I believe, and then quickly went out of print. Um, but in 1982, a California restauranter was reading a collection of Ernest Hemingway's letters, and he came across a passage where Hemingway was just like waxing lyrical about Markham's prose. And to the point he says, it felt that I was simply a carpenter with words after reading what she had written. So this restauranter convinced somebody to bring this book back into print in 1983, and it became very celebrated. Um, the reason I liked it, okay, caveat, it is written from a white person's perspective in 1920s and 1930s, you know, Africa. There is some definite casual racism and colonialism involved. Um, but there's also very, very deep respect for Africa, a deep respect for the people that live there. There is... Um, What's really fascinating is this woman lived an amazing life. She was rumored to be finance, uh, to be romantically involved with the Prince of Wales. Um, a lot of people have read um, Out of Africa, the Isaac Dennison novel, and she was part of that whole circle. But in her memoir, she does not talk about any of her romantic relationships at all. Like there is nothing about this. This is about her growing up in Africa, about um, her being, she was a horse trainer, her father owned horses. She actually started out as a horse trainer, being one of the first women horse trainer who was successful to do this in this time and place. And it is very much a beautifully, beautifully written memoir about a life lived that doesn't include any romantic entanglements at all, which if you've read a lot of memoirs with women, unfortunately, that tends to play into because that's their power at uh, women don't at some most points in history did not have a lot of personal power. It was all through their romantic entanglement. So for a woman to be as groundbreaking as she was to accomplish what she did and to write the most beautiful, beautiful descriptions of country and people, I, I do recommend it with those caveats. Know what you're getting into. All right. Thank you. Anti, nonfiction anti. Uh, nonfiction anti. Scott, what do you have for us? Uh, I, I don't have any nonfiction, but I do have uh, a mystery. Oh. Uh, uh, Everyone in my family has killed someone by Benjamin Stevenson, which is a great title. And you would think, <laughs> does, does the novel live up to said title? Well, uh, maybe not, but it is very good. Uh, but I will, with a caveat that... Um, so there are there are you know there are trends in in mysteries as there are in many things, and one of the trends is uh, kind of metafictional mysteries, and this is one of those. It's written the character who is the narrator is an author of books on how to write mysteries and is writing this book 
based on something that happens in his family's reunion. Uh, and so, and there are kind of notes from his agent and uh, all kinds of things. So it is, uh, if that kind of thing annoys you, you will not like this book. But if you are intrigued, maybe you'll like it. Uh, it does have some very kind of, um, like I had to stop reading the book at a certain point because something happens that I found very disturbing. So uh, take that for what you will. Uh, another book that, uh, I, you know who, who writes good books? Uh, that Anne Leckie. Uh, and Anne yes. Leckie wrote... <laughs> you don't uh, say. <laughs> She does. I mean, she's a little uh, unknown author that I have discovered. <laughs> little known, uh, not very many awards. Yeah. No, no. She needs me to really help her mm -hmm. profile here. Uh, she has a new book coming out called Translation State, which is in her um, Imperial Radish. Is that not Radish? Radish? I don't radish. know how to say it. Radish. 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 Yeah, sure. I don't know how to say it. But anyway. Uh, I like is... Radish. I think that's great. I do the Imperial too. Radish. I, I, I like Radishes. They're spicy. Just mm. like this book. Uh, and this book is, um, it is seemingly a slight tale of a woman who through circumstances gets an opportunity to do a super easy job seeing the galaxy but decides that she's actually going to do the job and that causes a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. it is, and a lot of things happen. I mean, uh, already, and, <laughs> this sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, and and yep. you get into, you don't necessarily, uh, Jason and I were kind of talking about this in the Incomparable Member Slack. Uh, you don't have to read the previous books, uh, but you certainly will have a greater appreciation for this book if you do uh, but I think it does stand alone and I, I think the reason why it, it delves into a particular thing this the the translators that show up in other th very mysterious things that show up in the other books uh, we get they're still even after reading this they're still very mysterious yes. but you you get more it's one of those things where you find out more and you still have more questions about like well how does any of this work um, so really good I imagine it will be nominated for the Nebula and Hugo for next, next year, year when uh, it's it's eligible. But it's 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 fantastic. Yeah, I well, agree. I just pre-ordered it, so <laughs> thanks, Scott. <laughs> I agree, Scott. I just finished it this weekend. Um, it is very good. Um, yeah, it does help in the sense that that you'll have you'll be more primed for what this universe is. But otherwise, mm -hmm. if you just jumped into it, you'd be like, oh wow, there are a lot of aliens and there's weird stuff going on, and that's kind of all you really need to know, but I think it, it's a lot richer if you spent those three books being like, what's the deal with the Prescott translators? Because this mm -hmm. book is sort of like, well, here's sort of their deal. But but then you get to the end and you're like, yeah, but what what, what about that? <laughs> How did that happen? And what does that mean? And it's like, there's still more questions there. Yeah, it's, it's both the, this almost like a cozy mystery kind of thing of like, well... Mm -hmm. Your grandmother died and you and and somebody bought the whole estate out from under her in some sort of a reverse mortgage. But it's OK because you'll be taken care of and uh, go off. Why don't you go off and investigate this cold case? Right. Like like with wink, Richard wink. Osman. You don't just just take a while just, and, and take take your time. And of course, instead, uh, she she steps in or she steps in. It's uh, one of the things about this is it is in truly Anne Leckie's oh, yes. favorite there. there. Not only is she going to make you think about uh, lots of different pronoun choices, but you have characters 
of indeterminate genders because it's Anne Leckie and it's the Imperial Raj series and it's going to be like that. And so that's kind of fun too. Anyway, so you've got that part and then you've got this coming of age where you've got these two fairly young characters and you're like, how how are they connected to the story? And boy, are they connected to the story. But it takes a little bit <laughs> for you to get to that point uh, and, and for it all to fit into place. And uh, very well done. It is so much about... What struck me about it, Scott, is that it's about... Um, it's about sort of like who who you are and whether it's determined by your you know how you were raised or what culture you're in or whether it's determined by your you know your own personal choices and I think that Anne Leckie is saying it's complicated but I think that she asks a lot of interesting challenging questions about there's a character who is uh, raised in a horrific environment uh and has some terrible practices. Uh, and then there's a character who was not raised <laughs> so in that environment Jason. and, and, uh, actually did okay. And, and, and then they're told, well, like, no, you're a menace to society. And, and their response is, no, I'm not. And there's this question of like, well, have they been lying to themselves about this? Or they were ultimately, are these people who said, well, they're just like this, they're, they're monsters. Uh, are those the people who are responsible for them being monsters? It's interesting stuff going on there that I thought I really liked. So, um, yeah, it's Anne Lecky. She's uh, pretty good. Scott, she's pretty good. Translation state. Check it out. And, uh, I am going to, I, I was going to recommend translation state and I know I wouldn't get there because Scott would do it. Uh, but <laughs> I got to jump on there. Uh, the one I will throw in is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin, which is a, not science fiction really, but it's a story about two people who are video game developers. And it's, they um, they meet as kids because one of the, they're, they're in a hospital. One of them is there because their sister has cancer and the other one is there because he's been in a horrible accident and has like lots of broken bones. And they sort of like become friends and bond over video games. And then they go to college in Boston together uh, and meet again. And they be it, it is uh, it goes back and forth between sort of like um, you seeing this relationship being built, and then also these asides that keep happening that are like, well, of course. Then the next year was the famous thing that they both did together that made them super famous. And you're like, oh, okay. Or are we telling a history? Is it a history story here or is it present day? And the book wants to have it all the ways. So, uh, but I, I found it really uh, just very good uh, of the, these characters and how they bounce off of each other and how they're, they're both very flawed and they have, and, and they make lots of mistakes. And I actually really appreciate that the story is all about how human these characters are and how many terrible mistakes they make. Um, but that they also have these connections to each other. Um, my frustrations with it are there is an arbitrary plot point that happens at one point that it felt like maybe the author just needed some things to get shaken up that it felt very much like, uh, there's actually a moment in translation state like that too, Scott, right? There's a moment where you think it's going to become a courtroom drama and then things start to explode and you're like, okay, yes. maybe not. And I thought, did Anne Lucky get to the point where they were get getting to the courtroom drama? And she's like, nah, mm, I'm not going to do yeah. that. I'm going to just blow things up now. Need a um, spaceship. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow has a moment like that that I thought was not necessarily earned. Um, and I also think it ends at a strange point where it's sort of like, oh, these people are going to, you know, they're famous and, and are they going to work together again? And, and then the book's like, well, that's the end. <laughs> okay. So I guess, I guess we, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, but still, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, good book about, uh, especially if you're interested in like uh, a book about people who are, you know, they're making their next 
um, you know, the next great video game and they have the challenges and like, do they follow their hearts and make something that is what they want or do they make something that's more of a commercial appeal? And, and then they're also their fraught personal lives. And yeah, it's good. That brings us to the end of the book club. But I, I get to announce our uh, our new selections for next time uh, because we do that in advance now because we're better podcasters than we used to be. Um, and so is that, is that why? Yeah, we're nicer. We're more professional. We actually know what we're reading mm. next and say so. I think that's just it's a service we provide, and also we got mm. our act together to know what it is. I, yep. I forgot what we're going to read, so I'm excited. Well, I've, I'm <laughs> decreeing it too. That's also part of it. So maybe it'll be a surprise. There are three not no, three Nebula nominees left on our agenda. Now that we've done these two, um, I am choosing two of them. We are going to read Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher next. Yay! And Duh. we're going to read Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Oh, the Ampersand series. Next. Yes. <laughs> there yeah. are. It's only two books, not four books. We're not reading Nettle, Bone, Legends, and Lattes. We're reading <laughs> Nettle and Bone and Legends and Lattes. Two totally different books. Uh, next time. Next time. As the, as the uh, awards reading marches on. Marches on. It's not a slog. It's a march. It's a, march. No. a death march. Uh, no, <laughs> it's a book march. Wait, what? Oh, it depends. oh no. <laughs> giving everything away. Uh, that's it, though, for this episode. Let me thank my panel one last time. Uh, thanks for reading the books. Erica Ensign, thank you. I can't wait to read something else. All right. Well, you will, <laughs> probably. I predict, I, I think Legends and Lattes is going to go over big with this crowd. I, I just read that, too, and I think it's going to go over yeah. big with this crowd. Uh, although maybe Scott won't like it because it's nice and friendly and fuzzy and warm. And Scott doesn't <laughs> like it. Scott, Scott's a meanie. Mm. Uh, Scott McNulty, thank you. No thanks to you, Jason. I am lovable. People yeah, like me. That's true. It's <laughs> true. I don't like them, but they like me. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, you, you may We'll see. We'll see if whether it passes it. the Scott test or not. Aline Sims, thank you. I would like to thank the listeners who told me on Instagram that they like me on the book club because they never agree with my opinions. <laughs> All right. Well, they know who they are and they're yeah, they nodding do. along in this episode. <laughs> and Deb Stanish, thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. I love oceans. Oceans. <laughs> Potions. Some Oceans people like the them. Win. Some people are against him. Mm. Go figure. Ooh, check them out. Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that it wraps up this one. We'll be back uh, in a month or two with uh, those next two books. Two ampersands, two books. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>